please uh, turn with me in your Bibles to the second of our two readings. That is 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, chapter 4, I beg your pardon, chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. And let us pray. We ask, Heavenly Father, as we study this section of your holy word, that from the written page we would see the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ, and be drawn and attracted to him and cast ourselves upon him, calling him our Savior and our Lord. For we ask it in his name. Amen. What are we most looking forward to? Uh, A birthday celebration. We've got one in our household in a month's time. Uh, Perhaps a family wedding or an addition to a family. Uh, Having a foot therapy session from your favorite chiropodist. And I have to confess that I'm of sufficient age and vintage to enjoy that sort of experience. Uh, An all-expenses-pay world cruise. Well, perhaps not during the COVID uh, experience. Uh, Or dare I say Christmas. It's only five or so weeks away. Alternatively, we could be looking forward or anticipating something that can be prepared for, but we're not precisely sure when. Uh, I'll give an an illustration of this or an example of this. I once got a phone call from an elderly man in Brody Ferry, and it went like this. Him, uh, Mr. Webster, I liked the way you conducted my friend's funeral last week and wonder if you would be willing to conduct mine. And I replied, "Uh, do you have a date in mind? Oh, no, 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 no. But he was making preparation. What should the Christian most look forward to? Surely this passage and other passages of the Bible contain the answer to this question. Believers should most of all look forward to the day when our Lord Jesus Christ returns and with the events that are surrounding it. As originally written and addressed, this letter was sent to the young, the infant, Christian church in the Greek city of Thessalonica, a city at that time under the dominion of the Roman Caesar, steeped in idolatrous and immoral religious culture and philosophies of ancient Greece. The Christian church in Thessalonica, we read in chapter 1 of the the epistle, was a community of Bible believers. They were also a community of gospel proclaimers who we read had turned away from idols to serve the true and the living God. And they were looking forward to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ from heaven who saves them, and I quote, from the wrath to come. Now, persecution of the Christian minority in Thessalonica was a daily expectation of these dear believers. Nor did they escape from the normal ups and downs of life. Already, apparently, some of them had 
died and been buried. Now, three months ago, uh, our congregation in Bronte Ferry celebrated its sixth birthday. Even in these six short years, a number of our most committed and staunch founder members have died, three of them in their 90s. We used to tease them about being the youth fellowship. Now, we miss these people dearly because they were quality Christians, deeply committed, and such people are hard to replace. Now, the Thessalonican believers, eh, like ourselves, were in the real world and had not escaped from it. All the normal and sometimes exceptional trials and tribulations were the common lot of these folk. So now for us, having studied the context and set the scene, the Apostle Paul addresses the matter head on. He doesn't use religious mumbo-jumbo pretending that the deceased are not really dead, but just in the room next door, you'll hear these ten a penny at most funerals. It's just not true. I attended, in inverted commas, a Christian funeral recently. No mention whatsoever of resurrection. Something is seriously amiss when that happens, and it has to be said. But here in this passage we have Paul's reason for praise and hope in such circumstances, affirming what Christians believe. What does he tell us? Firstly, Jesus died, and here is Christ on the cross. Here is his precious blood poured out for his people. Here our Lord Jesus endured unspeakable sufferings in order to save sinners such as ourselves. Here the love of God and the anger of God are revealed in full measure. For three hours the Lord Jesus Christ experienced the cruelty of man, mockery, verbal and physical abuse. Then for three further hours the drama is taken out of the hands of man. Darkness, that awesome symbol of God's anger, descends on the scene. And our Saviour suffers in silence. And against the dark background of the universal sinfulness of the whole human race, the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross stands out in sharp contrast as the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. And with that cry, it is finished. Jesus gives up his life as the one only but wholly adequate sacrifice for our salvation. Here on the cross, his work for our redemption has been completed. The wrath of God is satisfied. The penalty for sin has been paid. The punishment for our disobedience has been endured. And so now there is peace available for us through Jesus. Peace with God, why? Because we are no longer his enemies. But also peace 
in our hearts and in our minds, a calmness and a composure that comes to us as part of the assurance of our salvation. An outward objective peace with God and an inward subjective peace from God that controls our hearts and our minds. And all of this through the Lord Jesus Christ, who is himself the Prince of Peace. Andrew Bonner, uh, whom you will know the name, you will know, preached here, was one of the founding fathers of the Free Church of Scotland. He expressed it like this, Upon a life I did not live, Upon a death, I did not die. Another's life, another's death. I stake my all eternally. Jesus is dying. Second reason Paul gives is Jesus is risen. The apostle Paul unapologetically affirms the resurrection victory of Jesus. Jesus has been raised to life again on the third day. Had Jesus been a phony, he'd still be dead in the grave. Had Jesus been self-delusional, his, uh, he'd never have risen. Had he been a sinner, his non-resurrection would have been proof positive of that. But Jesus did rise from the dead, triumphantly, powerfully, victoriously, miraculously, and he revealed himself to many witnesses. In our reading in 1 Corinthians 15, we read that the resurrected Jesus appeared to Peter and then the twelve, and quote, to more than 500 people at one time, most of whom were still alive when Paul was writing this letter uh, to the Thessalonians. But some had died died in the time interval between Christ's resurrection and the written word appearing in Thessalonica. But not only that, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul asserts that both Christ's death and his resurrection were in fulfillment of the promises and prophecies of the Holy Scripture. He's, he asserts Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And the proof is burial. Then he asserts, Jesus died to take away, uh, sorry, Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day according to the Scriptures. And the proof of this, his appearances. Christ died to take away our sins. That's the purpose and the application to us. Christ rose from the dead, and the purpose and application was not only to guarantee our resurrection in due course, but to grant us new life even now. Paul wrote to the Christians in the town of Philippi, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And it is the power of Jesus' resurrection as applied to each of us by the Holy Spirit that brings us new birth, new life, 
new goal, new priorities, new destiny, and a new eternity. No wonder the Apostle Paul so confidently and unapologetically affirmed the atoning death and life-giving resurrection of Jesus, his Savior. Then Paul affirms, thirdly, Jesus shall return. As sure a historical fact as our Lord's atoning death, and as sure a historical fact as our Lord's victorious resurrection, so surely shall our Lord Jesus Christ return. We'll go into this uh, in a bit more detail in a moment or two. But let's look at what it says in verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. I wonder if you've ever been in a situation where some folk have witnessed a spectacular event or a most enjoyable occasion, and you happen to be elsewhere at the time. You missed it. Uh, could have been a top-notch concert if you're a music lover, or perhaps looking ahead in time, uh, hopefully not too distant, for the, the final of the Scottish Cup in football when Dundee Football Club and Rangers are contending with each other, and the final score was, as would be expected, Rangers 8 and Dundee 35, and you weren't there. Or your TV had broken down just before the match had started. Your friends were all excited about it, but you missed it. How very disappointing. How disconcerting for you. Now, it seems to me that some of the Thessalonian church members were a bit confused about this sort of thing. They didn't want to miss the event of Christ's second coming. They were looking forward to it. But question would be in their hearts and minds. What about their mums and dads also, believers, who, some of whom were dead and buried by this time? Would they being in the graves miss the big event? Certainly not, we read. Jesus shall bring back the dead believers with him when he returns from heaven. Now, by implication, this tells us where these dearly departed believers are now. They're with the Lord in heaven. Jesus has the believers who have died beside him in heaven now. Yes, their bodies were buried in the graves, but these dear departed saints were not in the graves where their bodies lay, but are in heaven now with the Lord Jesus, which the Bible tells us for them is far better. Philippians 1 verse 23. Dead believers are alive with Jesus now, their bodies as it were asleep, but as people they are with the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven where they see him face to face. You may be familiar with this hymn. Face to face with Christ my Savior. Face to face 
what will it be when with rapture I behold him, Jesus Christ, who died for me? What rejoicing in his presence when he are banished grief and pain, death is swallowed up in victory, and the dark things shall be plain. Face to face, oh blissful moment, face to face to see and know, face to face with my Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who loves me so. That's where our dear deceased believing Christian brothers and sisters are, and that's what they are experiencing and doing now. So, what's going to happen when Jesus returns? Well, we read about it in verses 15 and 16. We tell you this directly from the Lord, that we who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. What's this telling us? That all believers, living and dead, will witness this wonderful event as it unfolds before their eyes. No believer, dead or alive, will miss out. No believer, dead or alive, will be somewhere else when Jesus returns. No believer will have any advantage, living believer will have any advantage over a dead believer on that great day. Look at verse 16. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. First the believers in Christ who have died will rise from the graves. The Lord himself will come down. We read of a commanding shout, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet call of God. Uh, The late Charles Spurgeon uh, comments on this. This is one of the noisiest verses in the Bible. I remember some years ago preaching in the church in the village of Ferryden, just south of Montrose, and after the service was over, a, an elderly lady, and I get most of my backhanded compliments from elderly ladies, by the way, an elderly lady shook my hand enthusiastically, uh, and smile on her face, thanked me for the sermon, then added, when the minister's preaching, I have to put my hearing aid in, but when you're preaching, I have to put cotton wool in. Now, The point I'm trying to make here is, if you think my voice is loud, and I can assure you I can make it louder, but I'll not visit that affliction on you. If you think my voice is loud, just wait till you hear the commanding shout of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just wait till you hear the voice of the archangel. Just wait till you hear the trumpet call of God. There's nothing secret or hidden happening here. Nothing hidden either from our eyes or from our ears. Again, I remember many years ago on holiday in the village of Gardenstown or Gamery, as a lot of people know it, near Macduff in the Murray Firth, speaking to an old retired herring fisherman, a godly Christian gentleman. He pointed me to the ruins of the ancient church on Moorhead, the, the, the cliff on the, the west of the village, and uh, on the hillside, and pointing more directly to the ancient gravestones in the kirkyard surrounding the building. And he said, Aye, 
There's plenty lying buried in the ground there, and they're just waiting for the shout. And I couldn't have put it more eloquently myself. So what happens following the shout? Well, we read that first the believers in Christ who have died will rise. There will be the resurrection. The self-same bodies of believers will be raised, gloriously transformed, and reunited with their owners as they descend from heaven with Christ. Now, I no wish to be controversial. Ultimately, ultimately, concerning resurrection, it doesn't matter to the almighty, all-powerful God whether our bodies dissolve slowly in the grave or in the flames or in the digestive tracts of wild beasts or are vaporized even for that matter by a nuclear explosion. For just as gold dust is precious to a jeweler, then so much more is our dust to our Redeemer God. Just think what a beautiful ornament a skillful jeweler can make from a small quantity of gold dust. Then just imagine what a transformation the all-powerful, miracle-working God can do with a wee drop of our dust. Verse 17, Then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth, will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and we will be forever with the Lord. Do you know the, the hymn that it may be at morn when the day is awakening, when sunlight through darkness and shadow is breaking, that Jesus will come in the fullness of glory to receive from the world his own. Oh Lord Jesus, how long ere we shout the glad song, Christ returneth, hallelujah, hallelujah, amen, to be forever with the Lord, the Christian's greatest and most enduring of all blessings. The old Scottish paraphrase 65 encapsulates this as it envisages the redeemed in heaven praising and adoring God. Hark how the adoring hosts above with songs surround the throne. Ten thousand thousand are their tongues, but all their hearts are one. Worthy the Lamb that died, they cry, to be exalted thus. Worthy the Lamb, let us reply, for he was slain for us. To him be power divine ascribed, and endless blessings paid. Salvation, glory, joy remain forever on his head. You have redeemed us with your blood and set the prisoners free. You've made us kings and priests to God, and we shall reign with thee to him who sits upon the throne, the God whom we adore, and to the Lamb that once was slain, be glory evermore. Dear friends, that's worth looking forward to. Fourthly, practically, Paul writes, so encourage each other with these words. The purpose of biblical prophecy is not to provoke arguments among believers. And yet, so often, sadly, it does. It is so, the purpose is so that we can encourage each other. 
The late Professor Roderick Finlayson in his book about the last things quotes Frances Ridley Havergal, the hymn writer. She wisely wrote, when Jesus comes back, not one of us will be able to turn to the other and say, I told you so. Let's encourage each other, friends, by speaking often of our Lord and his promised return. In this age of great discouragements, in this age of seeming endless, frustrating disappointments, in this age of doom and gloom, when the merchants of despair and despondency seem to hold the floor and have the main say, what are we to do? How are we to be encouraged and encourage each other? Well, Paul tells us. He says, Jesus has died. And I ask this question, when did we last talk formally or informally with each other about Jesus and his atoning death? When was that last on the agenda of our friendly conversation? Paul tells us, encourage each other with this. Jesus has risen. And when did we last encourage each other and be encouraged by talking with each other about Jesus and his life-giving resurrection. Paul tells us, Jesus is returning. When did we last in common conversation among friends encourage each other by talking about the vital fact that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is coming back? This is a much more positive agenda for Christians than the glasses half empty council of despair. Finally, note well, this passage of scripture, this passage says nothing about the destiny of unbelievers when Jesus returns, so I won't either on this occasion, but I will say, <coughs> and say it ever so seriously, that it is essential that we are to be trusting Christ now as our Savior. And I urge you, don't leave this building tonight without doing so. Amen, and may God bless to his other, his holy word.